Uh, the readings from Exodus chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 13 through to verse 35. In the Church Bible, that's page 66. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring the slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky, so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on men and animals, on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his hand, the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down on the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and the hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said.
through Moses. Do take your seats if you'd like to pick up your Bibles again. Uh, Earlier on, we read a chunk from Exodus 9. We're actually looking at the whole of chapters 5 to 10, but I thought that was a bit unfair to ask Rich to read the whole of that. Uh, But that is the whole chunk that we're going to be looking at. So if you could open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5, that would be really, really helpful. Let me pray for us. Father God, please teach us now. Please show us more of who you are. Please help us to know you better so that we worship you rightly. Please be at work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts so that we don't harden ourselves to you, but instead, as you reveal yourself here, we'd be softened towards you and more and more wanting to live for you as our great Lord and King. In Jesus' name, Amen. Tough question for you. Who are you? Who are you? I don't know what you say to that. If you have to introduce yourself, you might say, oh, I'm, I'm so-and-so. Say your name or, or your job or you talk about your family or your hobbies or where you're from. Uh, Bram's first piece of homework at his new school has been make a booklet about yourself. It's an interesting idea. I wonder what you would put in a booklet about yourself. Well, last week we saw God introducing himself, answering that who are you question. In Exodus 3 and 4, he told us his name, Yahweh. And he told us what he planned to do as to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt through Moses. Well, this week, we're still really talking about who are you, God? But we're going to see how that went as Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and we see what happened. And what happened was that Pharaoh dismisses the Lord. Pharaoh dismisses the Lord. Chapter 5 from verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. He says, The Lord, Yahweh, Who on earth is he? Why should I listen to him? Why should I do what he says? Pharaoh was a very, very powerful man. He was not in the habit of letting other people tell him what to do. Especially not some random God he'd never even heard of. I've got loads of gods. He says, never heard of this one. What makes your one so special? I mean, somebody you don't know commands you to do something. You'd probably say the same thing. Sorry, who are you? I don't know who you are. Why should I do what you say? I don't even know who you are. Sadly, we do the same thing to God as well. Who even are you? Why should I do what you have to say? And there's Pharaoh dismissing the Lord. Yahweh, never heard of him. And so in verse 3, they ask again. It's a very reasonable request. They're not even asking to be free yet. We'll get to that. They're just asking for a few days off. But Pharaoh's not a reasonable man. Get back to work, he says. It's like a sort of union dispute gone horribly, horribly wrong. They say, please, can we have some more time off, as in any time off? And uh, 
they find the working conditions are about to get a lot worse. So chapter 5 from verse 6. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Bricks were made of clay. You'd mix in the straw to hold it all together, help it dry quickly. Gathering the straw needed to be done. It would have taken absolutely ages. And now they've got to do that on top of everything else that they've got to do. Some of you might recognise this from your jobs. Here you go. Here's a load of extra responsibilities. No more time to do it in. Certainly no pay rise. They're not going to get paid at all. Pharaoh is a ruthless dictator. He dismisses the Lord by attacking his people, by dividing them, by turning them against each other. See, the Israelites can't possibly keep up with the workload, and so they get beaten for it. And they complain. They go, well, for goodness sake, how are we supposed to get all this done? Well, you couldn't hardly get it done before, and now we've got to do this. And Pharaoh reminds them why all of this happened. He says, it's Pharaoh's fault. Sorry, it's Moses' fault, sorry. It's Moses' fault for requesting that time off. And so, just as Pharaoh planned, they turn on him. The Israelites turn on Moses. Chapter 5, verse 21. They say, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials. Literally, you've made us stink to him. You did this. You told us God would rescue us. And yet, ever since you've arrived, things have only got worse. This is exactly what Pharaoh wanted. He was going to divide and conquer, get them to turn on each other, get them to dismiss the Lord, get them to say all this rubbish about rescuing us. There's no way that's going to happen. Now, many people have seen a similarity between Pharaoh and Satan, a powerful enemy of God, one who hates God's people, one who oppresses them, one who stirs up division, one who undermines his word. You see, Pharaoh calls God a liar in verse 9. Get them to work hard so they stop paying attention to lies. Over and over we get this competition between this is what the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel says, and 5 verse 10, this is what Pharaoh says. What are we going to do? Is it what the Lord says or is it what Pharaoh says? There's battle lines being drawn up. There's a showdown coming between the Lord and Pharaoh. They are on a collision course, and there are ordinary people like us caught up in the middle of it. God calls us to worship him. He calls his people out, not just from slavery, but for worship. Come and be my people who worship me. But the same root word is used of what they have to do for Pharaoh. Serve him, worship him. It's the same word. This is a straight-up contest. This is Pharaoh versus God. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to worship? Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to fear? Who are you going to believe? In that sense, Pharaoh is a perfect example, not just of Satan, but of all sinners, of all of us, when we refuse to listen to God, when we dismiss him, 
when we make life harder for other people, when we make life harder ultimately for ourselves. You are not the boss of me, we tell him. Who is this Jesus that I should submit to him and do what he says? Now, Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord, sets the agenda for the rest of our section. Boy, oh boy, is he going to find out. Who is the Lord? Well, you'll see. In response to that question, the Lord reveals himself. The Lord reveals himself. He doesn't make a four-page booklet introducing who he is, but he makes himself very clear. Moses comes to God baffled at the end of chapter 5. Why is this happening? You haven't rescued them at all. And so God reminds him who he is. In chapter 6, it is all, I am the Lord. He reminds us of his name. He reminds us of his promises. And we'll be looking at that bit again at our members meeting on Tuesday. But for now, have a look at chapter 6, verse 6. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. The Lord will redeem, just like he's promised that he will. How is he going to do it? With mighty acts of judgment. Both redemption and judgment are how the Lord reveals himself. They are both a huge part of his character, and we need to know them both. And so we're going to look at those one at a time. The bulk of that time is going to be on, as you might have guessed from the plagues, how the Lord reveals himself in judgment. The Lord reveals himself in judgment. The plagues are the most famous, or maybe I should say ten of the most famous judgments of God. Sometimes in the passage they are called plagues. More often they're strikes. I will strike them. I will hit them. I will punch them. These are punches from the hand of God. Blow after blow after blow after blow of judgment from the Lord. They're a collection of the worst things that affect our fallen world. Disgusting things, unclean things, disease, fear, death, famine, economic collapse, ecological disaster. They're kind of uncreation as God turns the world back into chaos again. See, Pharaoh dismisses the Lord. Who is he? But as the Lord reveals himself in terrible judgment, Pharaoh is going to wish he'd never heard of him. Pharaoh has been asked very clearly to let the people go, and he refuses. And so the plagues begin. Chapter 7, verse 20. It's when the first one happens. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Now, this is revolting, isn't it? You actually try and picture this. It's like a horror movie. Every drop of water turns to putrid, undrinkable blood. And we're told it wasn't just the Nile. It was in all the pots and all the jars, too. 
You turn on the tap, blood. You go and grab a bottle from the fridge, blood. Pharaoh was out on his way to the Nile for a swim or a wash. Not anymore, change of plans. The people had to dig for new water, we're told. God was sending them a message. Can you see what happens if you don't listen? A week later in chapter 8, we get the next plague. Frogs come up out of the Nile and they just keep coming. Soon there are frogs in your bed, frogs in your oven. You go to get something down from a cupboard, it's just frogs. Wherever you look, it's wall-to-wall frogs. Now, uh, Lynn was saying this earlier on when she said, you know, you had the chicken in the Ephesians sermon. I didn't know if you're going to bring out a load of frogs in this sermon. I don't know, but no, I haven't brought any frogs. But this is, uh, this is an unbelievable amount of frogs. Everywhere you go, Pharaoh says, just make it stop. Just make it stop and you can go. And so God stops it. And now there are dead frogs everywhere. Chapter 8, verse 14 piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. The Israelites had become a stink, and now the stink is growing. Just let them go, Pharaoh. But no, he changes his mind. So we need another plague, gnats, itching, biting gnats. I don't know, I genuinely found myself sort of scratching myself while I was preparing this, and while I was thinking about what it would be like. You know, when you have a mosquito somewhere in the room, how annoying that is, how painful it is when you get above. These are millions of these things. And still he won't budge. So then it's flies, dense swarms, pouring in everywhere. Everywhere except where the Israelites live, amazingly. The sea of maggots arrive, spreading disease disrupting everything, ruining the land, we're told. And Pharaoh says, fine, fine, just have the time off, but you can't leave the country. I'm afraid that won't do. Okay, you can go, but don't go too far. The flies are removed. Pharaoh changes his mind again. The Lord continues to judge, killing the livestock. Again, just think about this, how it would lead to food shortages, travel delays, financial ruin, utterly destroying everything by killing the livestock. But when Pharaoh does his research, chapter 9, verse 7, he investigated and found out not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Surely he's going to listen now. This is not some fluke thing. This is a terrible judgment because I'm not listening. But no. And so we get the plague of boils. It's an interesting detail. We're told Moses and Aaron take a handful of soot from a furnace. This is the kind of furnace used for baking bricks. <laughs> oh, you like baking bricks, do you? We'll see how that goes. They throw the soot in the air, it blows away, and everybody is now covered with pustulating sores, oozing, weeping, red, raw boils all over their bodies. Now, this is really like the plague. When you think of plague, this is that. But Pharaoh can make this stop at any moment. All he has to do is listen to what God is saying and believe it, act on it. But he won't. Halfway through now, we, we come to the bit that Richard read earlier. And we read this one because in many ways this is um, kind of, it, 
includes everything that each of the other plagues has somewhere. It is in this particular one. This is the worst hailstorm Egypt has ever seen. Thunder and lightning. Uh, again, literally, it's fire coming down from heaven. And, and with thunder, it's, you know, voices of God, this kind of booming thing. Hailstones the size of tennis balls, smashing everything up, destroying the crops, killing anything and anyone stood outside. Perfectly sunny where the Israelites live. But the worst storm they've ever seen. Pharaoh admits, chapter 9, verse 27, this time I've sinned, he said to them. The Lord, Yahweh, this God, I didn't even know who he was a minute ago, but the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. You think, fantastic, this has worked. It's brought him to a place. No, Pharaoh changes his mind as soon as the weather clears up. Can we see the stubbornness of sin here? Just refusing to listen. Next comes the threat of locusts. This time the threat seems to be enough. Pharaoh's officials say to him, chapter 10, verse 7, Pharaoh's officials say to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize Egypt is ruined? Even his own people are saying, give up, Pharaoh. Can you see? Can you see? Because of your stubbornness, because you won't listen, Egypt is just ruined. So Pharaoh caves in. He says, okay, you can go. But only the men. So God blows in these ravaging locusts. He says the ground looks black. It is so covered. I imagine it would have crunched wherever you walked. These things devour everything. And again, Pharaoh says, okay, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've sinned. I'm sorry, forgive me. Pray for me. Pray for me that God would forgive me. And so the locusts are blown away. And along with the locusts goes Pharaoh's decision to let them go. And suddenly he's changed his mind again. And so the land goes dark. Chapter 10, verse 21, we're told it's darkness that can be felt. If you've ever been down in a cave, you know, you go on one of those tours and they make everybody switch their lights out and now it's dark. They're saying it was like that. Nobody can see anything. It is not safe to go anywhere. For three days, it is terrifyingly pitch black, even in the middle of the day. For three days. And so Pharaoh says, fine, just go. Go, just get out. You can take the women and children as well this time. Just leave the animals behind. We're going to make sacrifices. We need to take the animals as well. And he says, well, no, you can't go then. He changes his mind again. And he kicks Moses and Aaron out of the palace for good. He says, go away and don't ever come back. To which Moses says something along the lines of, fine, we'll be leaving soon anyway. <laughs> you will never see us again. There's going to be one final plague, which we'll look at next week. And then we'll be gone. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like to live in Egypt through all of that? Disaster after disaster, blow after blow after blow from the hand of God. Would you not be trying to think something is happening here? When each of these things happens exactly as the Lord has said it would happen, I should listen to what he's saying. And that exactly to make a message, to send a message, is why it's done. That is why God does it. He tells us over and over through this section. 
So if you're flicking around, chapter 7, verse 17. By this you will know that I am the Lord. Who is the Lord? Well, look at the plagues. Chapter 8, verse 10, he does it. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 22, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. Chapter 9, verse 14, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 29, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verse 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. The Lord's revealing himself over and over and saying exactly why he's doing it. I'm doing this so you will be able to answer that question. Who is this Lord? Who is he? He's revealing himself in judgment, his power, his uniqueness, his justice. Now, lots of people try to dismiss the plagues. They try and explain it away. Oh, it wasn't really blood, as if people back then didn't know what blood was. Oh, it wasn't really blood. There's just lots of red soil fell in the Nile. So it sort of looked a bit red. And then that made the frogs come out. And then the frogs died, and so there were lots of flies. And then the flies made the livestock sick. And they try and explain it like that. How exactly do boils lead to hail? How do you explain the blood in the pots and the jars and the jugs and the vases? What exactly led to total darkness for three days? People try and explain these things away so that they can dismiss the Lord like Pharaoh did try and ignore that this happened, or try to paint God as a nicer God who wouldn't do this kind of thing, the kind of God who wouldn't hurt a fly, let alone hurt with flies. But no, God is not squeamish about it. God is not embarrassed by this at all. He wants us to know, I'm doing this, not so later on you can deny this is the sort of thing I do, but so that instead you would say, this is exactly who I am in my holiness, in my justice, in my wrath. He wants us to know these are not natural disasters. They start and stop exactly on cue. Even when Pharaoh chooses the date, there's a point where Moses goes, when would you like it to stop? Uh, Tomorrow. Okay, it'll happen tomorrow. And boom, it does. They happen bang on schedule, bang on target. They're like a sort of guided missile. They hit certain areas and completely avoid other areas. These are not just natural events. They're intricately structured in three groups of three, which ramp up the seriousness each time. The first three are kind of warning shots. You've got the blood, the frogs, the gnats. These are unpleasant, these are annoying, but they're not that deadly. They can dig and find other water. The second three are worse. They're about disease. You've got flies, the livestock dying, you've got boils. And then the final set of three are apocalyptic stuff. You've got the mother of all hailstones where he says fire flashing down out of heaven and every green thing, every green thing being eaten by locusts and pitch black darkness for three days. This is end of the world stuff. There's structure to it. The first set of plagues, the first three come from Aaron's staff. The last three come from Moses' staff. The middle three, there's no mention of the staff. We talked about how God does it directly. These are not accidents. There's structure to it. I I kept finding these patterns. The first one, the fourth one, and the seventh one. They all begin with a a warning in the morning. We're told, go and confront Pharaoh first thing in the morning. The second one, fifth one, eighth one, 
You're told to confront him, but not told when. Third one, sixth one, ninth one, there's no warning at all. Each three has the same pattern every time. Over and over, this is not random. This is not random. There's design here. Every time it's ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. Six times we're told this happens just as the Lord had said. Are we getting the message here that the Lord is revealing himself as the all-powerful God who does whatever he pleases and is not to be messed with, not to be dismissed? We must listen to what he's saying, that there is no one else like the Lord. In chapter 12, verse 12, which is further on than we're supposed to be going, really, the Lord says that he is bringing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And that is what this is. Egypt worshipped the Nile as divine, symbolised by their god Harpy. The Lord leaves him bleeding. Frogs were symbols of life, believe it or not. The goddess Heket had the head of a frog and she was said to have breathed life into people. Well, now, just a stinking pile of death. Wajet, the fly goddess, lady of the marshes. Why would you have a fly goddess? That's disgusting. Anyway, she can't stop the swarms. Nut, the god of the air, can't stop the storms. Sekhmet, the healer, can't keep them safe from the boils. Apis, Hathor, gods with the heads of bulls and cows. They can't help the livestock. The sun god, Ra, the one we probably actually heard of. Each night he was said to journey down into the netherworld only to rise victorious each morning with the dawn. Well, the Lord punches his lights out and he's out for three days. Do we get the point here that the Lord is God and there is no other? Egypt's gods are shown up for the nothings that they are. Tim Chester says this, that the plagues are a lecture against religious pluralism, the belief that all religions are valid, and against personal autonomy, the belief that I have the right to live however I like. Just look at Pharaoh's magicians. These would have been the people who served those gods, who represented those gods. With their tricks, with their spiritualism, they were able to copy the first two plagues. Look, your majesty, I made more blood. I can make blood if you need me to. You know? but, uh, we made more blood. And I found another frog. It, well, to be honest, we've got enough frogs, to be honest. You know, if you were any good, you'd be able to get rid of them. By the time you get to the third plague, they have to admit defeat. Chapter 8, verse 18. 8, verse 18. When the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is a power we cannot compete with. This Lord, this Yahweh is real. He is strong. There is no denying it. Just like there's no denying Jesus. When in Luke chapter 11, he casts out evil. How does he do it? by the finger of God. Jesus is not just one God among many. He alone is Lord. And the plagues prove that. The last mention of the magicians, interestingly, is chapter 9, verse 11, when we're told that they can't show up for work today because they're covered in boils. (laughs) 
we're deliberately, I think it's funny anyway, it's supposed to be funny, I think. We've got this idea of the Lord versus the gods of Egypt, and the Lord wins game, set and match every time, because he alone is God. I wonder what you make of that. As we hear these things, does your heart move towards God, saying, wow, what a powerful, mighty God? What does it harden towards him? I don't think I like that. See, the plagues don't just reveal the Lord. They reveal our hearts, just as they revealed Pharaoh's heart. Each plague comes and goes, and every single time, Pharaoh is given a sort of spiritual ECG, if you like. We get to see the state of his heart. And every time we're told that it is hard, stubborn, unfeeling, refusing to budge. He's hard when it starts. And when he sees what happens, his heart gets, his heart gets harder. But who does that hardening of his heart? Well, there are three different explanations given throughout the passage. And there's a helpful bit where the three different explanations are given in three consecutive verses. So have a look. Chapter 9, verse 34. Chapter 9, verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So this is Pharaoh hardening his own heart to it. Then the next verse, verse 35, so Pharaoh's heart was hard. We're not told how, it just was. And then next verse, chapter 10, verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. So who did it? Was it the Lord? Was it Pharaoh? Was it just like that? all of the above. Our hard-heartedness is our fault. Pharaoh even admits in his better moments, I've sinned, I'm in the wrong, the Lord is in the right. Our hard-heartedness is our fault. And yet the Lord is involved in it. It's a mind-bending one. It might seem to us that God is being unfair Yet if the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, how can he punish him for it? Well, thankfully, that's exactly a question the New Testament answers. So keep a finger or a bit of paper or something in Exodus and then flick ahead to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. That's page 1136 in the Church Bibles. Romans 9, starting at verse 14, where he asked exactly that question. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, quoting Exodus 9, you heard this earlier, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. He's saying, is God unfair? No. Fair 
would be punishing all of us. None of us deserve to be saved. And if anybody is going to be saved, it won't be by our efforts. It is only going to be by God choosing to have mercy. If he had mercy on nobody, that would be completely fair. Yes, he could have chosen to have mercy on everybody. But then we'd never know how just and how holy he is. We'd never realise how kind he is in showing us mercy. There would be huge things about the Lord's character that we wouldn't know. So we're being told here that the Lord isn't merely redeeming people and judging people. He is deliberately revealing himself and what he is like through both of those things. God could have made Pharaoh say yes straight away. But then we wouldn't know how mighty God is. We might not have realised that he is the only God. And we wouldn't have had this example to be a warning to us. We need to watch out that what these plagues reveal doesn't harden our hearts. That we don't see this about God and say, oh, that kind of God, no thank you. The first five plagues alternate between saying his heart was hard and Pharaoh hardened it himself. His heart was hard, he hardened it himself. His heart was hard. It's only after plague six that we're told the Lord did it. The next one has both. Pharaoh did it and that's just how it was. And then in plagues eight and nine and ten, we're only told about the Lord. It does seem like there is a progression here, doesn't there, that Pharaoh is proudly digging in his heels and eventually he's stuck like that. The Lord locks in his final answer. Our decisions become habits. Our habits become character and we get stuck in our sin. We don't know where the point of no return is, which is why it is so dangerous to harden your heart to the Lord. The Lord is revealing himself through these judgments. Are we listening to him? And as we listen, are our hearts hardening towards him or softening towards him? The Lord reveals himself in judgment. But that isn't the only way he reveals himself. Lastly, and much, much more briefly, the Lord reveals himself in redemption. In redemption. The Lord isn't only judging here. He is also revealing something of his mercy and his kindness. The plagues reveal his patience. God gives Pharaoh nine chances to change his mind. They show his grace. When Pharaoh asks for the hail to stop, it stops. Even though, chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord. And he doesn't go, I know you don't actually fear me, so I'm not going to do it. (laughs) He still says, you've asked me to stop, so I'll stop. That is amazingly gracious, even when the repentance is so shallow. The plagues show his compassion. Before the hail comes, he tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh, bring everybody and everything inside. 
There is hail coming, the worst hailstorm you've ever seen. So make sure everyone's inside. You can avoid needless hurt. And it all comes down to faith in God's Word. Chapter 10, verse 20. No, not chapter 10, verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20, sorry. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. And we know what happened to them. He provides a way out in his words. Israelite, Egyptian, it doesn't matter. Trust him and be saved. There's the gospel right there, isn't it? Trust him and be saved. There is judgment coming. Here is how to avoid it. Whoever you are, believe that word. Here is how to get out of harm's way. Will you believe it? And those who believe it are safe. Those who don't are not. The Lord is a rescuing redeemer God. But we see it most clearly in the way that he protects his people. Four times we're told that the plagues miraculously do not affect the Israelites. Even when Pharaoh investigates, really, can we just check this? Not even one of them died. No, sir, no, not even one of their animals died. In chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, God says, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. In this clash of kings... Don't you want to be one of God's people? God makes a distinction between his people and everybody else, treats us differently, protects us. Yes, we live in a broken world. We live in a world that rejects God and is under his curse. And so we often suffer along with everybody else. But in so many ways, he keeps us safe. And ultimately, from his judgment, he keeps us safe. In Jesus. Like the Israelites were safe in Goshen, we are safe in Christ. That is the place to be, to not be destroyed by the plagues. When Jesus was on the cross, a plague of darkness fell over the land. As the judgment for our sin, our dismissal of the Lord, our hard heartedness, our idolatry, fell on him instead of us. And so when final judgment comes, these plagues are just a dim shadow of what that will be like. When that day comes, we will see he will treat his people differently. All around will be devastation. But those who trust in Christ will be safe. The Lord is revealing himself in redemption. And so then a word to those of us who are his. Praise God. As one person put it, trust and tremble at his power. We must trust him. A God who can work wonders like this, aren't you glad he is your God, that he is for us, not against us? Praise him. When Moses tries to encourage the people back in chapter 6, we're told they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labour. They're just too tired to believe him. The circumstances are just so hard 
that their hearts get hard as well. And it is easy to do that, isn't it? It's to just be so, I can't listen to what you're saying about God because I'm just so discouraged. It is so hard. But we're told here that the Lord redeems us. These terrible plagues would have been horrific to live through. But these were the means that God used to loosen Pharaoh's grip on them and to set them free. These horrible judgments were the means that he used to reveal himself to us. We need to know this God, his power. Chapter 10 verse 2 says, He did all of this so that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. So he's not just teaching Pharaoh. He says, I want you, my people, to know this so that you can teach your children. Teach this in junior church. I know blood and frogs and stuff. It's really nasty things. It's not really a children's story, but teach it to the children. They need to know this. God's people need to know about God's judgment and his redemption, about just how much he loves us, that he would go to these lengths to punish those who enslave us and to get us out of there. So we wonder, we marvel, we worship the Lord who does these things. And a word to those who aren't Christian believers. Listen to the Lord. Understand the message these plagues are sending. That the Lord judges sin. Don't dismiss him. Don't act like Pharaoh as if nobody tells you what to do. Listen to the word of the Lord. When he comes and warns you about judgment that is coming. When he comes and tells you how you can be safe through faith in Jesus. In the words of chapter 10, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before the Lord? Soften your heart to him, admit your sin, and we can find forgiveness. Who is the Lord? Well, he's made that very clear, hasn't he? Let's make sure we're listening. Let me pray. A loving Father God, you are the Lord and there is none like you. We hear about these plagues and we tremble at your power. Please help us not to harden our hearts. Help us instead to worship you, to believe what you say, to put our trust in you as our Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.